hearing Sean talk about uh, what part you have in music. Um, how many of you know if you're a baritone, alto, any of that stuff? I'm a barely tone. I don't even know what I have. But um, so I just kind of sing and it's all over the place. Uh, how many of you like a good love story? Uh, typically, we think of a love story as being a romantic love story. You know, guy meets girl, girl meets guy. But really, a love story can be about uh, an adoption story. It can be the story of uh, reunification in the home or siblings reconciling. And so if we broaden the spectrum of a love story, I think we could say that many of us enjoy a good love story. Uh, there's something about how it makes us feel. It's almost like a, a hot chocolate bomb explodes inside your chest and the, the warm sweetness washes over you. When you look at Christmas movies, um, really at their heart, they are their love stories. Uh, think about a Christmas carol. So, someone's heart changes uh, towards others. Uh, think about uh, Miracle on 34th Street or It's a Wonderful Life. They're, they're love stories, both within the home and, and in the hearts of people. Even new Christmas classics like Elf. Uh, it's a love story, right? Uh, Mr. Hobbs' heart changes and, and Buddy the Elf you know, meets a girl and, and, and life just turns out better. How many of you could be honest enough to say you've watched way too many Hallmark movies this Christmas season. I hear you. Uh, how many of you wanted to watch those Hallmark movies? Uh, okay, so-and-so, right? There, there are these love stories. And often, again, we look at these love stories because of how they make us feel. And I think one of the most unfortunate things about love is that we often associate love only with how it makes us feel. And so it's so easy to then to fall in love or to fall out of love. But what if love is so much more than feelings? What, what if love is, is so much greater than just how you feel about something? I would suggest, and I think you would agree as I give you some examples, that really we know in our hearts that love is so much more than how we feel. We know that some of the greatest expressions of love have little or nothing to do with how we feel. Uh, here's exhibit A. Um, 3 a.m. in the morning, a child wanders into your bedroom and throws up all over your bed. Do you feel good in that moment? Like the only thing you feel in that moment is like dry heaves. It's like, okay, it's going to be me next, right? But what do you do? You get up, you clean, you clean the child, you clean your sheets, you get all messy. Why? Because you love even though you don't feel great. Exhibit B. Uh, many of you have been here before. A relative, a friend does something really stupid and they end up in jail or maybe they end up in the ER and you will rush to their side or rush to the jail, not because you feel great in that moment. There is nothing ooey-gooey, warm, bubbly about it, but because you love them. Exhibit C, uh, if you're a caregiver, whether that's a parent or a spouse or a teacher or a nurse or a nurse's assistant, like, like you, you will change bed linens, you will change bandages, you will inspect really weird things in really weird places on the human body because you love somebody, not because it's like, oh, this feels great. No, because you love. We, we, we know that love is so much more than a feeling. And it's that love that we want to highlight uh, on this, the fourth week of Advent. The theme for the fourth week of Advent, today's the fourth Sunday of Advent as we anticipate all that is in Jesus Christ. You know, the beauty of Advent, it's called the, the in-between. 
because we have the first coming of Jesus who came and died and, and rose again, and we await the second coming. But yet it's still a season of anticipation. And so we look at these themes of hope and peace and joy. And now in the fourth week, we look at love. And that's a love that's so much deeper than any feeling. It's so much more than red roses. It's so much more than the, the right cut of diamond. It's, it's so much more than an oceanfront walk on the, I guess every walk on the beach is oceanfront. So it's more than an oceanfront stay with a walk on the beach. It's more powerful uh, than the warmest of hugs. And I know that makes all the Olaf fans sad. It's, it's more powerful than the sweetest of kisses. It's more powerful than that, that moment where you dance beneath the stars with someone that's special to you. It's a love that's characterized by surrender and submission and sacrifice. It's a love characterized by patience and perseverance and persistence. That's the love that we celebrate. It's a love that comes from God. And, and oh, by the way, if you don't know this or not, Famous words on love you should know are these from 1 John. God is love. He, he, he sets the standard. He establishes that for us. I shared with you during the first week of Advent, way back on November 29th, that one of my favorite verses to reflect upon during the Advent season is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting or eternal life. Just the, the picture that God loves us so much, that's why he sent Jesus, whose coming we continue to celebrate. But how often do we turn to the next verse, verse 17, and see the even more complete picture? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I'm gonna guess that there's at least one person in this room or one person that's watching online that needs to be reminded that God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn you. If you're feeling condemnation in the grace of God, then, then you've been taught that wrong. And so I want you to hear today how much God cares about you. He sent us to the world not to condemn, but to save, but to rescue you. That's what he came to do. The, the, the love that we see in Advent, I, I think as we, as we lean into uh, Luke chapter 22 today, is going to be really fitting. Uh, we, we've been studying Luke 22 as a church family, uh, Luke 22, no, Luke as a church family all year long. And as we come to the end of Luke, we're in the final days of Jesus' earthly life. And in the final days of Jesus' earthly life, he demonstrates the fullness of all that he came to do and all that he came to be. We're going to hang out in Luke chapter 22, and in here you're going to see an incredible picture of, of God's love. The events in Luke chapter 22 are probably some of the most well-known in Jesus' life. We have the betrayal of Jesus. We have the Passover supper that turns into the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. We have Jesus' disciples clamoring for greatness, posturing. We have Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial. We have Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane and praying with drops of sweat like blood. Famous, famous accounts. But, but all of these reveal and display an incredible picture of God's love. What I hope to do over the next few moments is just to walk you through what's recorded in Luke 22, 1 through 46, and help you see just some aspects of God's love that remain unchanging. And the first is this, is that God's love 
persists for imperfect people. God's love persists for imperfect people. When you dive into Luke 22, you have kind of a who's who of imperfection. You can begin with the first few verses, verses three, four, five, and six, and you see Judas literally selling out Jesus to the religious leaders. And yet what's Jesus' response to him? As dinner comes around, we know from John's account that Jesus still washes Judas' feet. He still washes. He still, he still gets down on his knees and he washes the feet of the one he knows will betray him. How do we know that Jesus knows that he'll betray him? Well, he tells us, Luke chapter 22, verse 21, behold, the hand of my betrayer is, is reaching into the cup with me. He, he knows he's gonna betray him and yet he still invited him to dinner. He still washed his feet. And what have we seen throughout this whole study of Luke is that Jesus eats with people because eating with people is a sign of I accept you, I love you, I care about you. And so even in these moments leading up to when Judas will complain completely betray Jesus, he eats with him, he dines with him. I'm not sure you can get a more complete picture of imperfection than someone that's willing to sell you out to other people for their own profit. You may have experienced that in your own life, and yet Jesus loves and loves and loves. And if that's not enough, as Jesus has served, as Jesus has told them that he's going to give up his life for them, as he's modeled incredible service by washing their feet, where do they turn after this? Verse 24 of Luke 22, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So Jesus is serving, and here are his disciples posturing for prominence and position and power. And yet Jesus has just modeled service. And, and Jesus says, guys, that's not how my kingdom is. Verse 25, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He says, listen, the way the world's kingdom works is that people get, they get a posture for privilege and prominence and power. But look at verse 26. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader is the one who serves. Jesus says, my kingdom has different rules. My, my kingdom's characterized by the posture of service rather than power and prominence. Again, the disciples reveal a picture of imperfection, right? They're, they're worried about themselves. What's in this for me? And Jesus says, guys, here's the deal. I'm gonna correct you a little bit here. I still love you, but, but this is what the true path forward is. And if that's not enough, you can turn the page over to Jesus predicting Peter's denial. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. If you're using the journaling Bible with us, I'd encourage you to underline verse 32. Jesus prays for Peter. Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm with you, Jesus. And Jesus said, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So even as Jesus talks about Peter denying him, we see the love on display because what's he also pointing towards? His restoration. He says, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. He sees that he's still going to use Peter. What a picture of love. 
we have a picture of imperfection in Peter that he would deny Jesus, but Jesus says, listen, I'm not gonna see you only because of your failures. I'm not gonna write you off. I'm not gonna kick you to the curb, but I'm still gonna use you in my kingdom. That's a portrait of love, a love that persists to imperfect people. And we can look into the garden as they leave the upper room and they make their way up there to pray. And Jesus says, will you just keep watch with me in prayer? And what do the disciples do? They, they go off about a stone's throw away and, and while they're supposed to be praying, suddenly the Passover meal, a little too much bread and a little too much lamb catches up with them. Maybe a, 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 an extra long drink of wine and, and they're out. And when Jesus finds them sleeping, does, does Jesus you know, say, hey, you morons. And just kind of just say, get out of here, go away. No, he, he says, we just keep watch with me that you won't fall into temptation. Do, do, do you feel the grace in that moment? He, he's loving them persistently in spite of their imperfections. I am so thankful that God loves us persistently even in the face of our imperfections. Because I don't know about you, but I can identify with Peter. I've denied Jesus. I've had opportunities to stand for Jesus, and because of what it might cost me, I have not stood with him. I know what it's like to be Judas. Maybe you do. Maybe you've had a moment when, when you sold out your faith for some temporary pleasure or reward. And yet what does God continue to do? His word tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Romans chapter five, verse eight says that while we were still sinners, while we were still screwing up, while we were still messing up, while we were still imperfect, Christ died for us. Every morning I look into the eyes of a man who's full of imperfections, and, and God still chooses to use me and still chooses to love me. That's the message of the love that's present in Advent is that it persists in spite of our imperfections. He still loves us. He still loves you. Yeah, you failed. You may have messed up big time. But God can continue to write a new story through your life. It's the power of his love. Well, you also see a love on display here that not only persists in the face of our imperfections, but it's a love that perseveres in prayer. Look at that famous account, uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine to 46. When Jesus goes out to the garden to pray, it says, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Just listen to this honest, vulnerable prayer of Jesus. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him, he's in such great distress, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Luke 
Time and time again, his gospel has shown us how Jesus had this regular habit of praying. Regularly, he tells us that he went off to a quiet place to pray. I think those rhythms serve Jesus well because what do we see in verse 39? He came out and went as was his custom. Jesus is just doing what Jesus knows to do. He, he knows to pray. And how, much, uh, how important is it for him in this moment when he knows the suffering is coming just to be with the Father? You may be saying, Craig, well, how does that show us his love? Well, who do you think was on his mind as he persevered in the garden? Why is he praying if it's possible this cup passed for me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done? Why is he praying that? Because he's thinking about you. He's thinking about me. He's thinking about your failures and your mistakes and your sin and my failures and my mistakes and my sin. He knows what the weight of that's going to do, how it's going to crush him. He knows the impending doom that's coming for him. And he needs the help. So he perseveres in prayer because he wants to love us so well. There's another picture of, of Jesus' love through prayer. Going back to Peter's denial after he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Look at verse 32. Again, this is why I would underline this if, if I were you. One of the things I love about God's word is that as we continue to follow him, he, he reveals different things to us on our journey. I've told you before, I, I became a follower of Jesus uh, July 16th, 1989, is when I went all in and said, I want to follow you, Jesus. But that's a pretty long time ago. I, I grew up in a church. I heard these stories of Jesus in the final moments of his life uh, and the weeks leading up to Easter nearly every year of my upbringing, and I had never caught this before. Verse 32, even as Satan wants to sift Simon like wheat, what does it say Jesus did? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Put yourself in Peter's shoes for a minute. How would it feel to know that the creator of the heavens and the earth, the, the son of God, the one through whom all the world was created, was praying specifically for you. That, 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 that he had you on his mind. What would it mean to you to know that Jesus was praying specifically for you? He was praying for you. He's praying for you. Wouldn't that be incredible? And do you know that he is? He, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 Words that, again, like those that I have missed on my journey as a follower of Jesus so far. The, the writer of this letter to the Hebrews talks about Jesus being our high priest. And one of the roles of the high priest was to intercede, was to pray for the people of God. And look at what Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says. After telling us that Jesus is his permanent high priest, he says, therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him. So he's able to save completely everyone who turns from sin and in faith follows him, right? How? Because he always lives to intercede for them. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you? He gave you his spirit. It dwells inside of you, but he prays for you. You're on his mind. He perseveres in prayer for you because he doesn't want you to fail forever. He doesn't want the, the, the misdeeds and the difficulties of today to win for eternity. He keeps praying for you. He wants you to hold out. And he wants you to hold on. 
Incredible picture of love that we have in Advent. It's why he sent Jesus to us, for us. So we see God's love that persists to the imperfect and God's love that perseveres in prayer. But there's more here. Uh, we, we see God's love in that he's willing to sacrifice for those most precious to him. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 begins the story of what we would call the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. Jesus gathered in Jerusalem with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. The Passover had been commemorated for centuries among the Jewish people. Maybe you recall the Passover commemorates that night when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And God had given warning after warning after warning to Pharaoh and said, you need to let my people go. And, and Pharaoh would, would not relent. And so the final warning was, listen, if you don't let my people go, then there's going to be basically the plague of the loss of the firstborn child. And uh, in the night, I'm going to come through and I'm going to kill every firstborn child throughout Egypt unless in faith they've slaughtered a lamb and they've brushed its blood on the door frames of their houses. And everyone in those homes, I will spare those children. And, 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 and Pharaoh didn't trust him. And so what happened is that God went through the camp and God went through uh, Egypt and the firstborn died, which is a horrible thing to think about. And the Israelites were to commemorate that year after year because those that trusted God, because they had the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their houses, they were saved. So each year they'd celebrate the Passover, reminding themselves of how God had saved and how God had rescued but here's what you and I need to understand about the Passover is that it, it also pointed forward because God made promises about a soon-to-be-rescuing king who would come and, and he would save people not from slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin. And so even as they commemorated the Passover, they looked out to when God would rescue and restore them for eternity. And look at how Jesus approaches this meal, verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Two words that I've missed in my 42 years are those words earnestly desired. Jesus looked out on the Google calendar and he made a notification. He went to the calendar on the wall and he circled it. He said, I can't wait for this night. I can't wait for this meal. I can't wait to eat with these guys. Why? Why was he so excited? Why did he earnestly desire to be with them? Because he was going to change the whole way they understood Passover. He was going to show them that what they had been anticipating for generations was going to pass. And look what he says in the next verse. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What won't he eat? He won't eat the Passover meal again until it's fulfilled. He won't eat that meal that commemorates Israel's rescue until what it was really looking forward to was complete. And what was that? That he was the Lamb of God. That he would die. And that through his blood, all that believe in him could be saved. And so he begins to try to help them understand. He took the cup, verse 17, and when he gave him thanks, he said, take this. Divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
So Jesus takes this Passover meal, commemorating the rescue of Israel from slavery, and he says, listen, guys, this meal means something different now. I'm going to rescue. I'm going to save. Believe and trust in me. And he says to do this in remembrance of him. And do you know what followers of Jesus have done ever since this night? They've gathered and they've eaten bread and they've drank wine or grape juice and they've remembered that Jesus saves. Throughout the history of the church, going back to this night, we see it in the days of the early church. They gather in each other's homes and they eat and they break bread together. And we, we, we see it in, in Paul's letter. He writes to the Corinthians and he says, listen, you're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Here's how you do it the right way. We, we hear it again and again in the writings of people after the apostles. There are these things called the... Um, the, the, the apostles' uh, teachings where there are these writings from early followers of Jesus and they, they talk about the Lord's Supper and people commemorating what Jesus had done. And we see in the early years of the church, the early centuries, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700 AD, all the way up through our present, people continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it proclaims the lavish, incredible love of God, his willingness to sacrifice so much for what's precious to him. And that's you and that's me and that's every other human being created and it will be created. And so we pause every week in our worship experiences to celebrate the Lord's Supper because it represents God's lavish love for you and tells you that you are precious to him. And this is what's wrapped up in Advent, that God came and he did this for you and for me. I love the description in 1 John, one of Jesus' beloved disciples. Uh, he, he writes in, in, in this letter, he says this, 1 John 4, 9 and 10 this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He sent his son to die for you, to rescue you. I thought it would be neat if in the middle of our message or towards the end of our message here, we, we would just take a moment to let this kind of soak into us, and we'd celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then as a song is played, I invite you to come to one of our communion stations located throughout the room. If you're a follower of Jesus, grab a set of the cups. There's a piece of bread on the bottom, juice on top. Take it back to your seats, and let's share in the Lord's Supper together. If you'd look out for those around you, if you've got family with you that maybe have some mobility issues, help them by getting communion for them. You're going to hear a song played instrumentally while we share in communion, and some of you are going to recognize it. It's a song called How He Loves. Some of the lyrics of that song just completely undo me in a good way every time I hear them. It says, And heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way that he loves me. God loves you. He loves you. And there's no more, I don't think, profound thought than you and I should have in the Advent season as we contemplate the coming of Jesus Christ. We anticipate his return, that he loves us. I don't know what it's like in your home. I don't know how often you hear that. But you need to know that you are loved by the maker and the creator of heaven and earth. 
And he'll persist in loving you through your imperfections. And he perseveres in prayer as he loves you. And he gave his life because he loves you. So as, as we take a few moments here, be reminded of that love. Let me pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for just the powerful way that you chose to come and to, to give your life, the life of your son for, the, for every human being that would ever live. God, may we bask in the glow and the radiance of that love this morning in this Advent season to be reminded how much you care. Guide us as we celebrate this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the story of Advent. It's a story of God's love for you. And that's why we save the theme of Advent for love to the very last week of Advent. Because as we lean into these final days leading up to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we just contemplate this, the whole measure of what God has done for us. The, the hope he brings, the, the peace he brings, the joy he brings that we've celebrated in this Advent season, they're all evidence of his love for you. It's a love, again, that is far greater than any feeling. I love the description of love that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 13. You want a true picture of love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It it doesn't rejoice in evil, but it delights in the truth. Love always trusts, and love always hopes, and love always perseveres. And love never fails. That's the love that God brings in Advent, and that's the love that God has for you. So how will you respond to that love? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, then was this the year where finally, after you've heard all these stories of God's amazing love for you, that you will respond to his advances and, and stop spurning the advances of your creator? Will you say, okay, God, enough, enough. I, I need you. I want to follow you. I want to I learn what it's like to live in the way of Jesus and to, 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 to live in your power and to live for your purposes. If that's you, then, then you need to confess to him, God, I, I want to I I follow you. I believe in you. And will you turn from living life underneath your own authority and for your own purposes to him? We call that repentance. And will you allow that faith to drive you to identify with Jesus and his death burial and resurrection and baptism. And as the Spirit fills you, you will live a whole new way and he will help you. You're not gonna live a perfect life, but he will guide you in experiencing life as it was meant to be lived. If that's you and you need to respond to the advances of God, I'd encourage you to reach out to a follower of Jesus that you know who can help you with that decision. 
And if you don't have that person, then I encourage you to reach out to, to one of our, our, our pastors, one of our, our church staff members, and we can help you. In fact, every week I'm available at the front of the room uh, following our worship experience. I'm happy to talk with you. Elders of ours are happy to, to talk with you. You can email us if you want something more private. Connect at lebanonchristian.org and we can help you make those decisions of faith. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, how do you respond to that love? Well, if you look at a relationship when someone loves us well, uh, natural response is to love in return, to love back as we respond in gratitude. And I challenge you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, to strive to emulate the same love we see poured out in Advent to other people. What would it look like for you to persist in loving imperfect people in your life? What would it look like to continue to love? Love in the 1 Corinthians 13 way, not love in the, the feelings way, those people that annoy you, those people that frustrate you, those people that, that, that you don't even like to be around. What would it look like to love them? What would it look like to persevere in prayer for them? That the God would work in them, that God would renew them, that God would change their hearts. What would it look like to continue to love them by persevering in prayer? What would it look like to love them by sacrificing what's precious to you on their behalf? Because as we love in that way, we emulate the love of the Father, and that's the best response to the love that God has given us. I began with the words of John 3.16, and I want to end with the words of 1 John 3.16. Same disciple, same old man, impressed, wrinkled from his faithfulness to Jesus. And he pins these words. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the immaculate, overwhelming display of your love in Jesus, specifically on this Thursday of Holy Week when he endured so much willingly. Father, would you help us experience your love and grow to emulate that same love? In your name we pray. Amen.